I knew that hearing voices was not a good sign and I was afraid of what people would think of me, so I didn't tell anyone at first for, for quite a while, probably almost a year. WVIA's Mind Over Matter, a mental health initiative, is underwritten by Geisinger. When you hear Geisinger, what comes to mind? A hospital? Doctors? Health insurance? We're all those things. But here's something you might not think of. We're also your local pharmacy. Geisinger Pharmacy isn't just for people in the hospital. It's for you. Want to fill a prescription? We've got you covered. Just need over-the-counter stuff? We've got that too. And Geisinger Pharmacy is run by your friends and neighbors. We're your local healthcare system and your local pharmacy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. I'm Tracy Matisak, and in this episode, we're talking about schizoaffective disorder. It's often mistaken for schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, but it actually can be a bit of both. People who experience it will have the hallucinations or delusions that accompany schizophrenia, but they will also show signs of a mood disorder like mania and or depression. As we'll hear from our guests, symptoms can often be severe, but they can also be managed with medication and therapy. Monica Mangello knows all too well what it's like to live with schizoaffective disorder. She experienced her first episode as a teenager in Scranton and has had many more in the years that followed. Many years later, she still struggles but is doing much better. We'll also hear from Dr. Justin Coffey, one of the nation's leading experts in psychiatry and behavioral health. Monica joins us now to help shed some light on the condition and share a bit of her journey. Monica Mangello, welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. Hi, thank you so much. So first of all, how are you doing these days? I'm doing pretty well with, in the last year or so. I've, uh, I've been more active and uh, functional than I had been. Yeah. Let's go back to high school and tell me about when you first experienced what turned out to be schizoaffective disorder. I'm sure you had no idea what it was at the time, but what happened? Um, I mean, I had always had some level of anxiety and depression and had been diagnosed with those things. But my first year of college was when I first started having uh, psychotic symptoms, hearing voices. Um, my perception of reality was odd. Even my vision would be strange sometimes. I really didn't understand what was going on. Um, but I knew that hearing voices was not a good sign. And I was afraid of what people would think of me. So I didn't tell anyone at first for, for quite a while, probably almost a year. Mm, so you were experiencing all of this. You don't say anything to anybody. At, at what point do you finally decide, I need to get some help with this? Um, it got to the point where I couldn't continue with school. I just completely fell apart. And uh, I, I just was crying all the time. And I had to tell my mother what was going on. And she got me um, into see a psychiatrist. And um, I had already had a therapist. But um, I ended up hospitalized at that point. Did your family notice, like when you told your mom, um, had she noticed some signs prior to that? I believe she had, but it was already known that I had mental health problems. So I don't think she realized how much the situation had changed until I said something. Yeah. And then you said you were hospitalized shortly after that. Yes. 
Um, Tell me about that, was, that. That was not my first hospitalization. I had been hospitalized twice as a younger teen in, in high school. Um, but this was my first time in an adult unit, which felt very different to me. Um, it's, it's very shocking when you go into a hospital because the process of it can feel somewhat dehumanizing. And that's not the fault of the staff or anything. It's just the process of how you have to be taken into the hospital. There, There's a strip search, which is very uh, frightening and upsetting for anyone. Um, and it can, it, it's just a shock. And you don't know what to expect from the other people there, from the staff. Um, and it takes a little bit to feel safe in that setting. Right. And I'm, I'm wondering too, if you were misdiagnosed early on because schizoaffective disorder, um, does not affect a lot of people. And sometimes it can present in other ways, as I mentioned, like bipolar or depression. So were they able to tell right away what was going on? No, um, they're pretty cautious, I think, to, to go directly to like schizoaffective or schizophrenia. So when I first had that hospitalization, they, they called it uh, depression with psychotic features, which tends to be kind of an, I guess, introductory diagnosis before they want to, they want to observe you. They want to really get a feel for what's happening with you before they jump to something more serious. And when they came up with the diagnosis, did you present as the bipolar type or the depressive type? Um, Once it had switched over to schizoaffective, there was a few other diagnoses. They had said schizophrenia for a while, um, but once they landed on schizoaffective, it was the bipolar type. So tell me a little bit more, Monica, about how that expressed itself because you talked about hearing voices you talked about your perception of reality um being off take us into what was going on in your mind at that time when you would have an episode like that the voices were once they started it was pretty constant and that was you know obviously upsetting and uh, gave me a lot of anxiety and i would react to these things not outwardly too much i try to keep that under control Um, but the perception of reality changes, some of them were so subtle, like it would just be, my vision would be almost like if you're looking into a mirror and you kind of move the mirror slightly and it, and it, it, your vision kind of curves when you're looking in the mirror, I would have that just in my life. I would have sometimes almost a static look, everything looked static or pixelated, um, so th- these were very odd things, and I didn't know what the, what they meant. What it, what it if I was having a medical problem or what what it was. Um, and the delusions. See, sometimes it's hard from my inner perspective to even be able to describe the delusions because they felt real to me. Um, it, it just uh, other people would be like, "Well, that doesn't really make much sense." I would say something and. And they'd, they'd be like, that doesn't sound right to me. But for me, it, it didn't seem out of the ordinary at all until later when I wasn't in that state anymore. Yeah, that had to be so incredibly confusing for you. I'm just trying to imagine um, having these experiences and not being sure if they're real or not. 
Yes, it's very difficult when you can't trust your own mind. Yeah. Um, you had some really rough years then. After you were first hospitalized, you're experiencing all of these things. Um, can you just describe what your life was like overall during those years when you had the multiple hospitalizations and, you know, what was going on with you and your family during that time? Okay. Um, I had a year where I was hospitalized nine times. It was 2005. And uh, so honestly, it was a cycle of in and out of the hospital. Um, And in between those times, I was going to um, Scranton Counseling's partial program. It's partial hospitalization. So it's a day program where you have therapy and groups and things. Um, That helped me, but I was just falling apart all the time, you know, crying all the time, uh, panicking, just constant panic attacks. Um, I would sleep in bed with my mom because I was afraid I would die in my sleep. Um, The medications, you know, in that year, I had to have been on a dozen different antipsychotics um, besides other medications. You know, they, they kept trying different things because nothing was working. And, uh, you know, when you're on medications that are that serious, you know, the antipsychotics in particular, the side effects can sometimes be just as bad or worse than your initial illness. And of course, you continue trying and you can find a medication that works well for you, but the process of getting there is traumatic. So, um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, what kinds of side effects did you have, first of all, and then how did you land on the right one? um, The side effects, almost every medication would have some level of sedation or, um, you know, just feeling not well. Um, but the most serious side effect I ever experienced was akathisia. And if people are not familiar with what that is, cause most people aren't, it's, it's described as a sense of inner restlessness, but that does not at all encompass what it feels like. It's to me, it's essentially the worst panic attack I've ever had times a hundred and it doesn't stop. And it's accompanied by a need to move. So I had this for about two months and I was pacing back and forth through my house. I didn't sleep. I couldn't eat. Um, my arms were stiff and rigid and I couldn't care for myself. My mother had to brush my hair, bathe me at 19 years old. It was mortifying. Hmm. That must have been just an awful time for you. I mean, it's hard to imagine um, having a prolonged experience like that. Yeah, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, Monica, do you have any idea what caused the disorder for you, whether there was some trigger or whether it was a genetic thing? Did you ever get a sense of that? Um, I think that there's a genetic component, probably a predisposition. Um, There is some history of mental illness in my family, not directly like psychotic illness in my direct um, line, but there I've heard some things like my mother's cousin, my, um, my great aunt had some issues like, so I, I'm not a hundred percent sure that that contributed, but, um, I think it's, it's probably a factor. And then, you know, 
I was doing some things that probably weren't smart considering that I, you know, I smoked a lot of marijuana as a teenager. Um, now I think normally that is not a super dangerous thing to do, but I think with my predisposition to psychotic illness that it probably didn't help anything. Yeah. Which makes me think about triggers. And I wonder if you've noticed over the years, whether there are any particular triggers that can spark an episode. Well, stress for sure is the biggest one. Um, if I have stressful situations in my life, it's much more likely that I'm going to have some kind of episode. Um, I try to keep the stress levels in my life as low as I possibly can just to prevent that from happening. And also sometimes physical illness. I have, I have chronic physical illness, autoimmune disease, and when I have flare-ups of that, it can certainly affect my mental health. Yeah. What happens when an episode is over in the aftermath? What is that like? Um, it's a long process of climbing back out of the hole is how I think of it. Um, it's, it's almost like once if you're in a, if you have a traumatic experience, like a, a traumatic event happened to you in the, you think once that's over, you're fine, but you're really not. Um, and, and I think that this is very similar to that because during the episode, you're just dealing with the immediate issue the whole time. And then in the aftermath, you have to deal with the emotions and the, you know, blowback from that. Any, anything that went on during that, that you might have regret about or shame, guilt, um, so you have to deal with all of that and try to get, you know, when I am in an episode or, you know, it's not necessarily just an episode. I've had years that I've lost to, of my life to these things. And then afterwards, it's like you have to pick up the pieces and try to rebuild your life into something functional and somewhat normal. Let me bring Dr. Justin Coffey into our conversation. Um, Dr. Coffey, what advice do you have for people who may have treatment-resistant conditions? That is, they try various medications and they work until they don't. Well, uh, it, it is unfortunately the case that many psychiatric conditions end up being chronic, albeit episodic conditions. Um, but the good news is that there are very safe and effective treatments, and, and there are many treatments available today. The frustrating thing about most of these treatments is that they, they can take a long time to work, sometimes weeks, if not months. That can be very difficult, stressful, uh, and challenging, not only on uh, individuals suffering from the conditions, but also uh, their loved ones, folks around them who, who care about them. Treatment resistance is uh, uh, an increasingly common medical term uh, applied to situations when uh, common approaches to treating the condition aren't uh, predictably successful. That raises questions about whether uh, the right treatments uh, have been tried, whether the right diagnosis uh, has been made. Um, and uh, uh, it's important that we understand, again, the words that we use matter. So when we think about treatment resistance, do we mean resistant to medications? Do we, do we mean resistant to psychotherapy? What is the psychotherapy that the individual has had? Is it the right kind of psychotherapy? Is it the right kind of medication or an adequate trial time period dose of medication? Have other forms of interventional psychiatry been explored, such as ECT or TMS? 
Um, there's an explosion in neuroscience right now that is giving us a lot of hope uh, that we're going to be getting better and better at taking care of these folks who are suffering. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this. WVIA presents a Mind Over Matter Minute. Hi, I'm Dr. Kylie Oleski from Geisinger. Many who face mental health challenges often wonder where to get help. Some can find help by tapping into their support systems, family, friends, and faith community, which for some may be enough. When it's not, self-guided apps, books, or online resources may be helpful. Levels of care beyond this include treatment groups, individual therapy, and considering medication like antidepressants. There are also intensive programs with more frequent appointments and inpatient settings for severe symptoms. When in crisis and need immediate help, call 211 or go immediately to your local emergency department. Remember, you are not alone. For more, visit wvia.org forward slash mind over matter or dial 211 to speak with someone who can help. Mind Over Matter is presented by WVIA in partnership with Geisinger. You're listening to the Mind Over Matter podcast, and we're talking about schizoaffective disorder, and it has elements of both schizophrenia, where you can see the hallucinations and the delusions, but also um, you see a mood disorder, whether it may present as bipolar or depression. So it's kind of a combination of both. We're talking with Monica Mangello from Scranton, who has experienced this for a number of years in her life. The good news is she is doing much better, but only after a very, very rough few years starting when she was a teenager. Monica, what was the turning point for you? Like, how did you know that you were beginning to get better? Um, I mean, there's a, it, it's been a back and forth, so it wasn't like one continuous getting better. Um, but in, in this last year where I started doing better, it, it was pretty obvious because I hadn't been able to leave my house for about two years. And you know, once I started being able to do that, I knew that I was on the way up, but it was, you know, a long battle to get to a point where it's not terrifying to leave the house where it's not, you know, so much of a struggle. And it's still a struggle. Honestly, it's just, I'm able to do it now. So were you afraid to leave the house because you feared that you might have an episode and, and, and sort of be out there and, and feel helpless? Was it just anxiety about going out of the house, period? What was behind that? Um, it, anxiety about going out of the house, period, but also um, that was exacerbated by specific phobias. I, um, I have a very severe insect phobia, so going outside in the summertime is very difficult for me, and then I'm afraid of my reactions, you know, if there's insects, I, my reactions, my outward reactions that I can't control are very dramatic, shall we say? Um, (laughs) So what happens? Well, I mean, there can be screaming and flailing, like it's not good. And then I'm super embarrassed and like the social anxiety of that, you know, I don't want people staring at me or thinking, you know, awful things about me. Um, so that all compounds into not wanting to even face the situation. Yeah. Well, I think we all have bug phobia to one degree or another. So, but I, I understand. Um, so what do you think it was for you, Monica? Was it, was it a combination of medication, of keeping your stress down? What was sort of the secret recipe for you that you feel has helped the best, um, in terms of, of your healing? 
Um, finding the right kind of medication has been helpful. I do best on mood stabilizers and I don't do well on antipsychotics, which took a long, long time to figure out. Um, and it, you know, I had to go through a lot to get to the point where that was obvious. Um, and now I'm on very minimal medication, but it does keep me pretty level. And I, you know, if I'm having a problem, I can increase it because there's room to increase it. It's a, a somewhat low dose. Um, and that's where I like to be is, is managing it that way. And of course, therapy is so important. And for me, I've had lots of outpatient therapy, but when I'm in the worst of the worst, I need more than that. You know, um, I've been in and out of the partial hospitalization program at Scranton Counseling because in those situations, I need more intensive therapy. I need it to encompass more of my life so I can rebuild. So it sounds like it's really a combination of things. It is the talk therapy, it's the medication, it's the managing your stress levels. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's more of an, a both and than an either or. Yes. And also personal support is very important. I, I am lucky enough to have a very, very close, small circle of people who truly understand and, you know, support me so much. And, and I don't think I would have been able to get through all of this without that, especially my mother. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that, about your family and how they supported you during that time. You mentioned, you know, your mom sleeping with you many yeah. times when you were really struggling and having to just help you with, you know, basic hygiene. Tell me a little bit more about that and how they supported you during that time. Um, my mother has just been there every minute for everything, you know, there with me in the emergency room for, you know, being admitted to the psych hospital. And I mean, I've been admitted 23 times, so it's been a lot. And sometimes I can't imagine what she goes through on her end, you know, and I tend not to think about that in the moment as much. But after the fact, I, I'm, I'm apologizing to her. And she, of course, says, you know, that's, I don't want you to be apologizing or feel bad. It's you're sick and I want to be there for you. Um, so, so there's that part of it, but the day to day, you know, I can call my mother anytime and, and now she's, I live with her. Um, but I can talk to her anytime in, in great detail about my illness and she doesn't judge me. She doesn't, you know, She's not horrified by the things I say where some people might be because it's so out of the realm of your average experience that people don't have a place to start understanding it. Well, I'm thinking, too, about friends. And this started for you at age 16. So you're in the middle of high school, which can be hard enough anyway. Um, where were your friends in all of this? Did you have supportive friends in addition to your family? I did. I did have supportive friends. My The first time I was hospitalized uh, when I was 16, um, I had a close group of friends, about half a dozen, I guess. And they went to my mother's house and took Polaroid pictures and wrote little notes and sent them with her to, to the hospital when she visited me, um, that kind of thing. And, you know, when I came home, they made a big fuss about it and everything. So, you know, that really meant a lot to me. Um, and and I've had, you know, I have a, f a few close friends that have stuck by me through all of this. And, and for some people, it's just too much. And you know what? 
I understand that, you know, if I didn't have to deal with it, I wouldn't either, <laughs> you know, like, not that I wouldn't be friends with someone who had problems, but I understand not wanting to deal with this level of intense difficulty. Yeah. So for people who are listening, who may have a loved one who is struggling, whether it's with schizoaffective disorder or some other mental health condition, what would you say are the best things that they can do to support someone who's going through a difficult time? Listening without judgment is is probably one of the biggest things because it's a natural reaction to just be like, oh my God, you know, if you hear something shocking, but if you try to control those kind of knee jerk reactions, it's going to do a lot for the person's self-esteem and confidence in being able to talk to you. And, you know, the other thing is, is that just being there, just showing up is 90% of what you need to do, you know, uh, not just calling, checking in. Uh, if someone is hospitalized, you know, it, it can be very, a very natural thing to feel awkward about that situation. To it, It's kind of like, hush, hush, we don't talk about that. But just like a physical hospitalization, you know, the person needs support, send a card, anything, you know. So it sounds like it's really just being there, right? And letting yeah. the person know that you're there for them. Like you don't have to say anything particular or have a wealth of knowledge. It's just really about just just knowing that you're there for that person. Yes. Uh, you know, because you're as a friend or a family member, you don't need to be that person's therapist and you shouldn't try to be because that's not your role. What what you need to do is be there for them in the same way you would be there for, for anyone you're close to. Yeah. So this started, Monica, when you were 16. You're now 30-ish, right? I, no, I'm uh, 37. 37, I'll be, I'll okay. I'll 37. So this has been going on a long time in your life. Tell me what your life is like now. Um, right now, I am uh, participating in a clubhouse program that just is getting off the ground. Uh, it's called Katie's Place Clubhouse, at, and we're running out of Scranton Counseling right now. But um, that has been a big part of my turnaround this year because it's a program that encourages connection and relationships and it it also encourages us to kind of own the program, like where we are the ones building it, we're the ones running it. And for me, that's giving me confidence and skill for my future, because I have a lot of plans for the future working in mental health and uh, advocacy. And this is for me, a bridge from where I am to where I want to be. And it gives it's me a lot of hope. Yeah, it sounds like a part of your treatment is is doing that, right? Is yes. being part of something that's bigger than yourself, part of something that you're you're helping to build that's going to help somebody else. Absolutely. Um, you know, hope is probably the most important thing when you're trying to when you're trying to deal with life. I think for anyone, hope is important. If you don't have any hope, what are you going to do? You you're not going to try if you don't have any hope. And this has like kind of lent me a hand in that so that I can see a better future for myself. 
And we should let our listeners know that if you're interested in getting more information about Katie's Place, uh, the website is katiesplaceclubhouse.org. That is Katie with a K, K-A-T-I-E, katiesplaceclubhouse.org, if you'd like to get more information about that. Monica, it is no small thing to share a story like yours, given the stigma that still exists around certain mental health issues, given everything that you have been through over the last 21 years, what made you decide to tell your story? Um, You know, I've always kind of wanted to share my story as a way to encourage other people. I've just not had the opportunity to before this or the ability to, you know, when I'm not doing well, I couldn't possibly do this. Um, So it's really, I've seen so much suffering around me uh, in my years in this system. And if I can alleviate any of that or help anyone, it, it's an amazing feeling. Yeah. And and how about work-wise? Um, how are you doing work-wise? Are you doing I well am, with your job? I'm not currently working. Katie's Place is kind of going to be my bridge into that. You know, I intend to go back to school and get into professional work, like nonprofit work and stuff like that. But I haven't been working since 2017. Before that, I was a medical transcriptionist for about seven years. Um, and that was my longest stretch of being able to be that functional. Um, and I hope to get to that point again. Monica Mangello, thanks so much for sharing your story with us and for your willingness to help others who may be having similar struggles. And many thanks to Dr. Justin Coffey for joining us as well. I'm Tracy Matasak. Thanks for listening to the Mind Over Matter podcast. For more information, check out our website at wvia.org slash mindovermatter. See you next time. WVIA's Mind Over Matter, a mental health initiative, is underwritten by Geisinger. When you hear Geisinger, what comes to mind? A hospital? Doctors? Health insurance? We're all those things. But here's something you might not think of. We're also your local pharmacy. Geisinger Pharmacy isn't just for people in the hospital. It's for you. Want to fill a prescription? We've got you covered. Just need over-the-counter stuff? We've got that too. And Geisinger Pharmacy is run by your friends and neighbors. We're your local healthcare system and your local pharmacy. 